Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chaney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Chaney, Galuzzi, and Howard, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I'm its co-chair of the new lawyer division and also serve on the executive and legislative committees. I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association and the Colorado Bar Association. For the Colorado Bar Association, I sit on its board of governors, the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council, and finally, I was just appointed to begin serving on the CBA's Executive Council. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. With that, let's jump right in. Our guest today is Ms. Ryan Payton. Ryan currently serves as the director of the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program, CAMP, which is a program of the Colorado Supreme Court. A former litigator and a seasoned consultant and advocate on professionalism, diversity, and equity in the legal field. Ryan has been routinely recognized for her legal practice, most recently earning the 2019 American Bar Association Rosner and Rosner Young Lawyer Professionalism Award and the 2014 Colorado Bar Association's Outstanding Young Lawyer of the Year Award. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, why don't we just kind of jump in with a little bit about uh, who you are and kind of how you got here. Uh, where are you from? Where am I from? I'm actually from all over. I am a Denver native. I was born here, but I didn't grow up here. Lived a little bit in Washington, D.C., a little bit in Chicago, and then settled roots in Minneapolis, where my family's been now for almost 20 years. Oh, wow. Minneapolis is a great city. I got some extended family up in that area. Uh Really, really cool area. It's uh, wonderful for three months out of the year. Otherwise, it's too hot or too, <laughs> too cold. cold. Yeah, I, I certainly don't miss the amount of snow that they yeah. get. And uh, the mosquitoes are always yes. a fun time up in yes. Minneapolis. Absolutely. Well, what about for college? Uh, where'd you go? So I went to the University of Denver on a uh, lacrosse scholarship. Oh, cool. Very cool. Uh, what? Uh, how, was, how was DU? DU was great. I loved my time there. It was a lot of fun. I was able to get involved in a lot of things. Playing lacrosse at the college level was an amazing opportunity and had a great time. Did you know when you were at DU that, you, that law school was kind of in your future or was that something you kind of figured out as you went? It was something I figured out as I went. I actually uh, decided late in my college career that I wanted to be an FBI agent. And so that is why I ended up in law school. <laughs> oh, that's cool. What a what a cool career. Um, and is, I guess I don't know a lot about becoming an FBI agent. Is a law degree uh, something that's helpful uh, for, to pursue that career path? At the time, it was. Everybody that I had talked to and networked with uh, as part of the as part of the industry said that going to law school would be helpful if I were to pursue a career with the FBI. Interesting. So you learn something new every day. Yeah. Uh, and so after DU, uh, where, where did you go to law school? I went to law school at the University of St. Thomas, which is a small social justice-based law school in Minneapolis. 
was social justice something that was important to you? uh, Or why did you choose St. Thomas? Absolutely. I wanted to get a law degree in a place that really prioritized that social justice. I looked at a lot of law schools, some of which had a very traditional based legal education, which which is great. Um, But for me, I knew that whatever I did in my legal career was going to involve people and working very closely with people. And so I wanted to uh, attend a school that really prioritized learning how to work with people. Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, and what at what point, I guess, during your your law school career, did you shift from wanting to be an FBI agent to pursuing another avenue? Uh, really, when uh, after law school, when I figured out that uh, I was not going to become an FBI agent and um, <laughs> that wasn't going to be a, a career pathway, I had to shift shift course uh, fairly quickly and, and decide on another another pathway. How did? Uh, you go about the process. And I think this is something that a lot of young lawyers struggle with. How did you go about that process of, okay, the FBI isn't, isn't happening for me or isn't for me. Um, I need to find a new practice area. How did that process kind of uh, unfold? It, it was a long, slow process, uh, but one that really could not happen in a vacuum. I would say that I, I went about it by talking to a lot of people talking to people who knew me and could help me to see the strengths and attributes that I brought to the practice, and also talking to people who were doing different things. Anytime I saw somebody who was doing work that seemed interesting or relevant to me, I'd invite them out to coffee and just let them tell me about their practice. One thing about lawyers is they love to talk about what they do. So it was very easy to get people to sit down and just tell me about their life, tell me about their practice. And in gathering all of that information, I was able to really design a pathway that that was a good fit for me. You know, that's something that we've, I think, heard from other guests that we've had on the show and something that I think would be really important for law students and young lawyers that are listening is you really got to be comfortable gathering information. Don't be afraid to ask that person for coffee, even if it's not in a practice area that you're necessarily like sold on, because until you have that information, you're not going to be able to kind of make um, the best decision uh, for you. Exactly. You have to talk to the people who are doing it and and not be afraid to reach out to even the big players in that practice area. It's amazing to me how often I'll talk to folks who are, up, who are at the upper echelons of some of these practice areas who say, I never get calls from people. And if any young lawyer were to call me up, I'd be glad to sit down and tell them about what I do and help them think about how they could get involved. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I think about my own career when, you know, we opened up our firm pretty soon after graduating law school. And so naturally, we had to have a ton of mentors. And when we were selecting them, you know, we we had people that were a few years older than us that, like, I felt comfortable calling all the time. And then you got kind of, you know, more mid-level players that, you know, you call some of the time. But there was this hesitancy, and I don't really know why, to reach out to, like, the top person, you know, the person getting these massive verdicts and everyone is in awe of. And, you know, I, I, I don't really know why that is, but... That's really great advice to not be afraid because if everyone's thinking like that, then we actually have very few people exactly. reaching out to them. And the worst they're going to say is no or ignore your your outreach. But most of the time they're going to say yes and they have some great information to share and they're happy to do it willingly. Well, I think that's kind of a great transition into the next topic that I want to talk about, which is just a little bit about your career path. Obviously, we we know where you are now, and we know you're not an FBI agent. <laughs> so let's let's kind of track that. What practice area did you end up deciding to kind of focus on early on in your career? So when I, when I got out of law school and, and after I spoke to a lot of folks and tried to figure out what was best for me, I did end up in family law for a long time. I spent about eight years doing family law. 
And what was wonderful about working in that practice area was I was able to really make it my own. So one of the things that I brought to that practice was uh, an LLM in tax, which allowed me to take on cases that were more uh, high net worth, dealing with a lot of financial issues, uh, which as a young lawyer helped me to carve out a niche in my firm and in my practice, because there was no one else in my firm who had that kind of uh, background and ability to, to handle those types of cases. So I was very quickly able to develop a niche there. I also was able to develop a niche working with LGBT uh, families and, and same-sex couples as they were going through the divorce process because at the time, uh, there there was no equal marriage laws. There was really nothing. And so we were um, putting people together and taking them apart in all sorts of different ways um, and having to kind of be creative and make it up as we went along. And having that background and that knowledge of the community also allowed me to develop a niche. So I got pretty lucky as a young lawyer to be able to contribute so much to my firm. Uh, so early in my career. You know, and that's that's a really, uh, I think, a good topic to talk about is the importance of sometimes selecting a, a niche because, you know, you can pick a broad practice area, but there's going to be a million other lawyers doing exactly what you're doing. And if you're a brand new lawyer who doesn't have a huge network, who doesn't have a, a string of cases or examples they can cite to their work, um, you know, it can be really helpful to kind of narrow it down. And I think, Sometimes people think, well, then am I limiting myself? But if you're the person to, you know, like LGBT divorce issues, if you're the person for high net, high net worth, like complicated tax issues, like you're the person that people are going to associate. And, you know, you're going to get a lot of calls from family law generalists who may want to consult with you or work with you or refer you clients. Absolutely. And that's also what I found because as I tried to expand my practice into other practice areas, I realized my whole book of business was family law. And I kept getting family law calls and eventually went back to just doing that because I had developed so much of a, a reputation for doing that work well. So, you know, I've had one family law case uh, that I worked on and that was that was enough for me. Um, but I know that family law, like um, some other practice areas, can be very stressful and kind of emotionally taxing. Um, how would you recommend that law students and young lawyers in the family law uh, kind of world deal with that kind of uh, emotional burden that can kind of come with dealing with really complicated and, and hard issues? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question and, and one that I don't have a wonderful answer to because that's part of why I left is I wasn't really uh, great at balancing those uh, emotional demands. But a couple of things I learned uh, in that process is one, to find a place where you can do that practice and have control over your caseload. Part of what makes family law so difficult sometimes is having to work with on, work on cases or work with clients that you wouldn't otherwise really choose or want to work on. And so if you can uh, find yourself in a place, whether that's hanging your own shingle or working at a firm where you have some choice and some control over your, uh, your docket, that's important because it's going to keep you saner. Uh, the other thing is to uh, do your best to maintain professionalism and civility uh, with within the, the the legal community in the bar, uh, especially the family law bar, because uh, it's hard enough to deal with the emotional issues of, of family law, but it's even harder when you have to work with opposing counsel who is difficult to work with, and you don't want to be one of those difficult <laughs> people. So uh, the more that you can uh, really maintain that professionalism, build those relationships, the easier it is to navigate some of those cases because it's lovely at the end of a case to be able to go out to coffee with your opposing counsel and kind of debrief together uh, about how difficult some of those uh, issues were. And it just makes you feel like you're not alone. 
Yeah, and to, and to piggyback on that, and I think that's true really for almost all uh, practice areas, you can also better represent your clients when you are civil with opposing counsel. And sometimes the client will not understand that. You know, you represent me. Why aren't you, you know, burning this person's house down? And, you know, the reality is, is that if I can talk to them as a person, we might be able to reach a fair compromise that benefits you. And if this person hates me because I burned their house down in the last case, then the next person that comes along is not going to get that level of representation because the communication structure is going to have broken down. So uh, eventually you do transition out of family law. Kind of what do you do next? I think you did some consulting. Is is that right? Or well, was that, I, that was in there at some point? It was in there on some point. I, so I left, I left family law practice uh, and then I went into the nonprofit world. Um, I wanted to get back to those self, social justice roots, uh, get back to my community. At the time, a lot of work was being done around same-sex marriage and equal rights. And so I had an opportunity to be the legal director at the GLBT Community Center of Colorado. And that at the time just felt like the right the right move. It 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 aligned with my values, with my passions, and got me out of family law, which I was admittedly burned out on. So I did that for a year and had a lot of fun um, working there, working on a lot of great um, equal rights issues, but also helping them to build a new segment of their uh, of their uh, organization focused on training employers on how to make their workplaces more inclusive of LGBT employees. Uh, and so that was uh, the consulting role where we built a, a consulting company that still exists today that goes out and trains employers. Wow, that's really, really cool. Good for you. Um, and I know at that time or maybe right after that time, you were also doing a little bit of teaching as an adjunct professor over at DU? Exactly. At that time, I was invited to uh, teach at DU in their externship program, uh, which for most folks you know who are recent law school grads, you know that uh, most schools have an externship program where you spend your summers as an extern. And there's a classroom component to that. So I was able to teach a lot of uh, legal ethics, professionalism, um, mentoring through through that uh, experience. Um, and obviously, if you, you taught a class, I'm sure you could talk on that topic uh, for, you know, most of the day. But uh, for our young lawyer and law students that are listening, if you had to give them, you know, one piece of advice when it came to ethics or professionalism that, you know, if you take nothing else away from what I'm saying, take this away, what would that be? Find a role model. Uh, you know, we all take the MPRE, we have to read legal ethics from an academic standpoint. Uh, but the gray area in the practice of law between what's unethical and what's unprofessional is quite gray. Um, and when you get out into practice, it's going to become difficult to, to navigate that a lot of the times. And so to have that uh, professional or ethics role model that you can look to uh, to see how they navigate those gray areas and who will talk to you when you get into those gray areas, because you will, uh, that's uh, that's going to be some great advice for you as you get in, out into practice. You know, and I'll say that I'm five or six-ish years. How do you lose track of time? <laughs> I'm five or six-ish years into uh, the practice of law, and I still constantly um, have to deal with those issues. And um, thankfully in Colorado, we've got the Ethics Hotline, which is a great resource. And um, I also was able to kind of find a couple mentors that I thought were um, practicing law the right way because you can be – uh, a skilled advocate, but not necessarily do it the right way and vice versa. And so you sometimes need to find 
kind of multiple people um, because you may want to emulate certain aspects of what someone's doing, but you may say, Ooh, that's, that's not necessarily for me. You know, I wouldn't have talked to that person like that. Exactly. Or wouldn't have made that choice. Um, what brought you back uh, from the nonprofit world kind of back into the legal world? I know there was probably a lot of overlap between policy and working to advocate for legal change and representing clients, but what kind of drew you back into the legal community? Really, I missed the profession. Um, being in the nonprofit world, uh, even in a legal role, is very nonprofit oriented. And so I felt like I had lost uh, my connections in the in the profession, in the bar, in the community, and I wanted to get back to it. I knew I didn't necessarily want to go back into traditional practice, but I wanted to be back in the profession and, and doing what I could to improve the profession. And so where did you land uh, kind of back in the profession? So ultimately, I landed at my current position, which is uh, with the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program. Uh, I got an opportunity to take on that role about four years ago. Uh, John Baker, my predecessor who started the program, was retiring. Uh, and uh, luckily, I was able to to get that appointment and, and take on uh, the position at a time where we needed to grow the program. And so what is uh, CAMP or the Colorado Attorney Mentorship Program uh, for those who are not familiar with the acronym? Sure. So I like to say that our job is to help Colorado's lawyers find their people, their place and their purpose in Colorado's legal community. And we do that by connecting folks with mentors, with coaches and with other professional development opportunities so that they can really find um, who they are and where they want to be in the profession. What drew you um, to camp? You've told us a little bit about kind of what drew you back to the profession. And I know you were kind of looking for maybe a non-traditional role rather than just going back to a firm and, you know, practicing law. Uh, what was it about this camp program that, that kind of you felt like would be a good fit for you? Well, in all, in, in all honesty, I'd become quite uh, disenchanted with the profession. And that's part of why I left to practice is as a diverse lawyer, I felt like I wasn't getting a fair shake. I felt like things were harder uh, for folks like me. I was just frustrated with the level of professionalism. I just had a lot of, um, of disdain for the profession. And I wanted to do something that would make the profession better. And the role at camp was really that opportunity. In the work that I do, I'm able to really implement great programs and resources uh, to help people make the profession better and also be on the policy side and rulemaking side to help the profession improve as well. And so what does, um, obviously it's a mentor program, so you know that's fairly self-explanatory, but what is the structure, I guess, of the program. Um, let's maybe start from the uh, mentor side. You know, if someone wants to be a mentor, uh, how do they, I guess, contact you guys and how does that process kind of work? Sure. Well, a couple of, of, of aspects of your question. The first thing is uh, to get involved in the program, whether as a mentor or a mentee, you just go to our website, which is coloradomentoring.org, and you can complete a profile to become one or the other. Um, but we really pride ourselves on being not your typical mentoring program. So we do have some structure, but we really want the mentoring pairs to decide for themselves how they want to work together. We're all adults here, and you, you know, as a mentee, know better than I do what your professional objectives are and how you want to work with your mentor. And so we don't dictate to you how you have to do that. Um, so each mentoring pair really takes their own journey. 
We have some structured programs if they want to take advantage of that. Some people just learn better with facilitation and structure. So we have mentoring plans um, for folks who are brand new to practice, who are maybe hanging a shingle, who are working in-house. We've tried to create a number of plans that really um, capture a lot of different aspects within the profession. And you're welcome to follow those plans and utilize them as your, as your structure uh, for your program. Uh, but some folks just want us to be the matchmaker. Uh, they really like the way that we do our matching because we take such a holistic, intentional approach to matching. And once we connect them, they go off and really do their own thing. And we're good, we're good with that because we want them to, again, design a program that works for them. Let's dig a little deeper into this kind of idea of matchmaking. What are you guys looking for when you are um, pairing up uh, a young lawyer or, or somebody with a, a mentor? Is it practice area? Is it diversity? Is it age? Is it personality? Is it all of the above? Kind of what goes through uh, your guys' process in order to to matchmake? So it's everything that you mentioned. Uh, We never match by computer. There are a lot of programs out there that will just throw names into an algorithm and have it spit out some type of a a match, mostly based on practice area. We don't do that because, um, you know, practice area is just one component of what makes a great uh, mentoring relationship. So for every mentee that comes through the program, we actually sit down and talk to them before we match them. We never just take a profile and match without actually speaking to that person and getting a little bit more information about who they are and why they're here and what their professional objectives are. And once we've had a chance to sit down and talk to uh, those mentees, then what we do is go out to our mentor pool and select a a slate of mentor candidates that we think could be a good fit for them. And then we speak to each one of those mentors and essentially interview them on behalf of that mentee, get to know them better, tell them more about the mentee, um, and have a conversation about how that mentor would want to approach the relationship. What's important for them uh, to get out of it? Where do they want to get the mentee connected? What do they think is important for them to know? All of those types of things. Uh, and then uh, we take those mentors and present them to the mentee. And the mentee gets to decide if they want to be introduced to that mentor. Uh, and if the answer is yes, then we connect them for an initial meeting where in pre-pandemic time, they would sit down and have lunch. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, now it's mostly Zoom calls. But they get to meet one-on-one and talk to each other before we officially match them. And then we'll only match them when both parties feel like this is a good fit. We want to move forward. Oh, it sounds like uh, you guys really put a lot of thought into it and, and really try to um, uh, work on that that kind of matchmaking process. Are, I guess, are most of them end up being successful or do you guys have to rematch frequently or... So our rematch rate is less than 4%. Wow. So there's something we're doing right about um, about our matching process. So most of the time it does work out. Um, but, you know, sometimes people's needs change along the way, and that's okay too. Frequently we'll match people with multiple mentors or do mentoring triads because we don't believe that one person is the end-all be-all for mentoring. And so um, we're seeing that more often now where we'll be pairing a mentee with two or three mentors at a time and have them all work together collaboratively as a group. Yeah, and, and that's and that's something I've experienced in my my own practice. I literally would have had no way to start a firm without a ton of legal experience had I not had probably at least five or ten people that I really considered mentors. And man, that first year, some of them I called almost mm-hmm. every single day, and I kind of thought back, I'm like, man, you might have regretted kind of agreeing <laughs> to be uh, my my mentor. But uh, it is I cannot. Uh, uh, overestimate how important it is to, to have those kind of relationships. Um, for camp, do you need to be barred or are law students eligible? Law, 
and law students are absolutely eligible, as are folks who are currently practicing out of state but intending to transition into Colorado. So if there are young lawyers who are moving to Colorado sometime in the near future but aren't here yet, we're glad to work with you now before you get here so that you can get the ball rolling. Oh, that's great. I did not know that. And that I think would be a great resource of trying to kind of break into the legal mm-hmm. community and at least have, you know, a few people that you can kind of contact and call. Um, I do think Colorado's community is overall, overall pretty welcoming, but mm-hmm. it's always nice to have an introduction and to be able to, to have somebody you can lean on. Exactly. I'd like to, uh, in addition to camp, I know that you are also active in the CBA's Young Lawyers Division. Uh, We both serve on the Executive Council um, together. We've spoken a little bit on the show about um, what kind of YLD is, but why don't you just kind of give a a brief rundown of kind of what the YLD is and kind of the context of the, the bigger bar and kind of who's eligible. Sure. So the Young Lawyers Division is a segment of the bar that's dedicated to the needs of young lawyers. And young lawyers are those who are age 37 or younger or have been in practice, I want to say five years. I think, or I think it's five. I think it's five. I'm Don't almost, quote us on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost not a young lawyer anymore, so I have to uh, watch uh, watch what I say. But um, so, yeah, but, but the division is really there to uh, create programming, resources, mentoring and leadership opportunities for young lawyers uh, because we want them to get involved with the broader bar. Uh, because most of us who are involved with the Young Lawyers Division absolutely believe that engagement with the broader bar is an important part of everybody's practice, uh, no matter where you practice or what you do, uh, to be involved in that professional association is 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 of benefit to you. And I know that, uh, well, from knowing you, but also reading your bio, that you are involved in a lot of different things, doing a lot of really great work. What attracted you to the CBA YLD of, you know, the millions of organizations you can join? Why did you choose to get involved in that one? Well, I will say at the time, um, certainly the overlap with what Camp was doing and trying to reach uh, new and young lawyers was was a super important aspect of getting involved because I wanted to um, be able to connect uh, the folks who were coming to my program with the right resources in the YLD. And I felt like being in a leadership role with the YLD would help me to do that at a much higher level. But on a more personal note, I had um, been trying to get engaged with the YLD since they gave me an award in 2014, um, the, the Gary McPherson Award. Um, in, in interviewing for that award and being a part of that process, I realized how um, how wonderful the the executive council was and how important this division was. And um, I had just been trying kind of year after year to, to get my foot in the door and finally was able to. Uh, and I will just say for those who don't know that, uh, and Ryan probably wouldn't say this, but the, the Gary McPherson Award is arguably the most prestigious um, award that a young lawyer can win in Colorado. Um, it's very uh, competitive in that the people that apply are uh, people that do really amazing work for the community, are very active, um, and really just great young lawyers. And so uh, it's a great honor uh, to, to, you know, and you obviously uh, deserve that um, for your work um, kind of in the community. I want to talk a little bit about some stuff that I know you've been working on a lot recently and really kind of driving a lot of this stuff, uh, which are diversity and inclusion um, issues. Um, what is CBA, and we can kind of start with the, the big bar and kind of, you know, work our way down. Um, what overall is kind of CBA currently doing to address diversity and inclusion issues in the profession? Sure. So as part of the CBA's um, last strategic plan, diversity and inclusion was a, a pillar of that plan and something that they wanted to focus on. And one of the first things that happened was the CBA and the DBA uh, combined, the DBA being the Denver Bar Association, combined to create a joint steering committee uh, focused on diversity, inclusion, and equity. And that steering committee has been working together for about 18 
18 months now to to create an action plan, a strategic action plan focused on diversity and inclusivity within the bar. Um, and so that that team is working very diligently at the higher level, looking mostly at governance and leadership in the bar. Um, but at the YLD level, then we wanted to replicate a lot of that work um, for ourselves because uh, it's wonderful that the big bar is focusing on that, but we have an obligation as well as a young lawyers division to focus on that in the way that makes sense for young lawyers. And so that's the work that the YLD has been doing recently. You know, and I think anyone can look out at the legal profession as a whole and, and understand that we need to do a lot better when it comes to these issues. And um, certainly Colorado, which for all of its positive things, is not the world's most diverse state. Um, and so we need to be doing um, kind of a, a lot better. Uh, my question for you is, um, you know, there is a, a focus sometimes and just on, on getting people that are diverse kind of in the room. But I know that you've done a lot of work on kind of the next step, which is that you can get someone in the room, but if you're not giving them power, if you're not giving them leadership, if you're not giving them resources, they may not be successful. And so why has there been such a a focus uh, on making sure that we're getting diversity in leadership positions and and getting people of different backgrounds kind of into the the power-making structure? Absolutely. So one of the things that we found out when the Joint Steering Committee started doing its work is we pulled the metrics. We looked at what was the demographic of the big bar. And what we found is that the demographic of the bar matches the demographic of the profession. Now, the profession itself has a lot of work to do, but when we look at the profession in Colorado in terms of diversity, the bar is right on par with that in terms of the numbers. So we knew that there wasn't much more to focus on in terms of getting more diverse folks to the bar. Obviously, it's important, but we were doing that online with the profession. But what we, where we weren't seeing those diverse um, uh, lawyers was in the leadership roles, that they were members of the bar, but not taking on those opportunities. And so um, in order to really develop that aspect of inclusion and equity that you're talking about, where it's more than just numbers in the room, how do you get people to feel included and to contribute? We had to focus on getting people, getting more diverse lawyers in those positions of power, because uh, they're the ones who are going to help us create more of that inclusion. Have you seen... Um, over the last couple of years, have you seen kind of in, in tangible improvements, um, whether that's in CBA YLD, CBA as a whole, or, or the profession? Are we beginning to get traction on some of these issues? I, not so much in the profession. We remain kind of stalled um, as a profession. But within the CBA, I do think we're getting better. I think once we put a spotlight on what was happening um, and made this more of a priority, it did start to shift. And I think the YLD is really leading the charge here because uh, we have the opportunity to be more nimble as a division uh, and we have access to so many great diverse minds. We've been able to, to really move this ball forward on behalf of the entire bar. And I know this has been a question, uh, you know, we're shooting uh, this podcast during a time of uh, social unrest, uh, uh, a lot of issues dealing with race, but, you know, diversity and, and things like that as a as a whole. And I know this question has been asked a lot, but, you know, a lot of the lawyers in the profession, unfortunately, look like me. You know, they're, they're straight white males and, you know, we're not the world's most diverse uh, profession. What can people that are not super diverse do to support diversity inclusion initiatives uh, either at the bar or just kind of generally? Um, Because that's a question I know that I've seen a lot recently, just like what I want to help. I'm starting to understand this is a problem. I'm starting to 
read and listen, which I know is arguably probably the most important thing is listen when people speak. Um, but what kind of steps can they take to, to kind of help this? So I think it goes back to the same thing we've been saying um, all this past week is utilizing your privilege to, to do better. Um, so one of the things that we um, we have the opportunity to do in the profession is mentor and sponsor people. So mentorship and sponsorship are different. Um, mentorship is really just that guiding, guidance counselor kind of role, which is important. But sponsorship is utilizing your clout, uh, your name to pull people up with you. And so for those in the profession who uh, have the privilege of getting those leadership roles, being in those positions, uh, utilizing those positions to bring up diverse people with you. Um, if you're in a leadership role, appoint diverse people when you have appointment power. Uh, when you're in a meeting talking about, um, you know, folks for contention and leadership positions, talk about the diverse lawyers, you know, and the good work that they're doing. People listen to you because you have that privilege as that straight white male in the profession. And so utilizing that privilege to bring diverse folks along with you can mean a lot. And I know some of the work that we've been doing um, to try to kind of brainstorm, you know, these really difficult issues. And it's not just related to the bar. I mean, obviously, we have societal discrimination. We have a lack of diversity inclusion in almost all professions. Um, I know that the CBA YLD and, and kind of the CBA more generally has been trying to kind of push these uh to, to break through that that barrier by things like hackathons and, and different sessions. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a hackathon and kind of what's the goal of that? Sure. So hackathons really came out of the tech industry where uh, a lot of companies would hire hackers, <laughs> professional um, tech hackers, to try to hack their software and their databases and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And anyone who could do that would get a prize. Uh, and it helped to make those, those software platforms better because if the hackers could get in, we could fix those holes. And so we've taken that concept and applied it to the diversity and inclusion space by saying, how do we uh, come up with a more creative way to solve some of these huge systemic problems? And we do that through hacking. We spend a lot of time, um, you know, sitting in rooms, talking to one another about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could make these changes? In a hackathon, we put people together in, um, in, in teams for a very short amount of time and say, all right, solve this systemic problem. One being, um, you know, equal pay within the profession. Solve that problem. There's no, there's no guardrails, there's no bounds, boundaries, just solve it. And it's amazing what kind of creative ideas can come out of those, um, those hacking uh, opportunities when you have a limited amount of time and the sky's the limit. Right. And uh, are there any other um, upcoming uh, diversity or inclusion events that are coming up or um, if people are listening and kind of want to get involved in uh, this uh, ongoing challenge that's certainly going to be here for a while, uh, how can they go about that? So a couple of ways. The Joint Steering Committee that I mentioned earlier is always looking for micro-volunteers to work on their teams as we're implementing the uh, the strategic action plan. So if you want to get involved in that, um, that's a great place to, to get engaged. That work's going to be ongoing going for a long time. The CBA YLD is doing a ton of work in the diversity and inclusion space. We're going to have a TED Talk later on this year. It had to be rescheduled because of COVID, but I think in um, September that's going to be happening. In uh, our hackathon, even though we've already completed it, we are working on building out uh, the results from that hackathon, creating pitches and finding community partners to maybe pilot some of these ideas. If you want to be involved in that, we'd love to have you engaged as well. And then finally, I'll make a plug for the Center for Legal Inclusiveness, which is a 501 501- C3 organization here in Colorado that is focused strictly on developing diversity and inclusion in the profession. They actually have their own young lawyers division and would love to have you involved. 
Awesome. And then I usually wrap up these episodes. Uh, Ryan, would you mind providing our listeners an email address if they ever want to ask you questions or, you know, try to find a mentor or just reach out to see if you want to have coffee? You bet. It's kind of long because it's a state address, <laughs> but it's r.payton, P-E-Y-T-O-N at csc.state.co.us. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the uh, podcast today. Uh, It was a real pleasure speaking with you and always a pleasure really diving into some of these uh, complicated issues that don't necessarily have the easiest answers. And so thank you again for all the work that you do to uh, help improve our community. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Get legal with it.